I read last week that the post-COVID available office space in New York is 74,582,671,000 square feet, which sounded like a lot actually, but it didn't register with me until they said that it corresponds to, 20, to the size of 26.6 Empire State Buildings. It's not no, just New York, by the way. In Los Angeles, the empty space is nearly 45 million square feet. Chicago, 60 million. Toronto, around 30 million. We're talking about remote work. People like to praise its impact on reduced traffic, emissions, and lost time. When criticizing it, people like to talk about the loss of company culture, interaction, and team building. But there's another item to think about if you've been reluctant to go back to the office. Two-thirds of supervisors overseeing remote workers admit to believing that remote workers are far more replaceable than in-person ones. 42% of them say they forget what tasks they assign to their remote workers. And perhaps not surprisingly, remote workers get promoted less often than their peers, despite being 15% more productive. When we don't have to wonder why this is so, how humans see the world, how you and I see each other and the world and lives that we build in is surprisingly complicated. There's an entire classification of ways that humans warp the perception of themselves and the world they live in. Technically, these are called cognitive biases. You know them better than after talking to someone and you end up shaking your head, usually your children. Among these cognitive biases is something called a hot bias, when people have wishful thinking and they think that it can make something happen. There's something called the well-traveled bias, and that is how you classically underestimate the amount of time it takes to go back and forth over a well-traveled route. And then there's something called a normalcy bias, where people think that nothing bad will ever happen to them. And in and amongst all these cognitive biases that humans walk around with every day is another one called the nearness bias. It says that we care more for people that we spend time with closely than we do for people who may not be physically close to us. So if you're reading a newspaper and someone in Nigeria is starving, it doesn't disturb you nearly as much that if a co-worker or friend came into your office and said to you, I haven't eaten for three days, the closer people are physically to you mirrors how close you feel to them and how we care and worry, attend, and think about them. By nearly every measurement, it is inarguable. With work, family, and friends, closeness is feeling. If you work in close physical distance to one another, if you live, eat, and socialize closely with other people, you will care for them and they will care for you and your chances of survival and success are multiplied. But we also know that exceptions prove the rules. In other words, a pattern is seen as a rule because an occasion, usually an extremely rare one, there exists an oppos oppositional reality where something operates outside of that rule. When it comes to the nearness bias, the exception that proves the rule 
is the Jews. Now, it's not surprising to us, of course, in Europe, the one great tale in medieval Europe of a European going, traveling far outside of Europe to go trading and do business is the story of Marco Polo. They told stories about him for centuries. But over the course of more than a thousand years, Jews engaged in commerce and trade across the entire known world with each other. The reach was not only over Europe, but deep into the Levant and the Middle East. We have records of Jews from Turkey and Persia buying and selling with Jews in Poland and France. Jews from Britain traded with Jews in Egypt. Italian Jews arranged for net credit notes with Jews trading in Baghdad. Now, how is this possible? We shared a language, Hebrew, something that a non-Jewish European couldn't share, for example, with a Persian. We shared a binding value system. Rabbinic courts stretched over wherever there were sizable Jewish communities, giving confidence to, say, a Jew in Istanbul, that if they had a trade dispute with a Jew in Cologne, that they knew that a decision would be respected by both courts and both parties. And if they didn't respect the decision of the court, they would have to fake censure from their local rabbinic court. And while the customs may have been different from one area to another, the faith was the same. A traveling Jewish merchant knew that he could find shelter and food anywhere he could find a Jewish community. It's still true today, by the way. And in times of trouble, they knew where they could find safety. But the fact is that there is more to this story than just courts and laws and religious practice. Jews don't need nearness to be close to each other. The Torah reading from this morning was the beginning, as I told you earlier, the fourth book of the Torah, Sefer Bamidbar, the book of Numbers. It is here in this book that the Israelites have left Egypt and Mount Sinai far behind them. They are now on the move, edging ever so closer to the borders of the Promised Land. And we hear over and over of the idea of the generations passing. With the fourth book, the Torah is closer now to its end than to its beginning. And it asks us this morning to understand what this journey through the wilderness might have to teach you and me. The Torah, not surprisingly, is also very clear in how the Israelites move through the desert, tribe by tribe each of the 12 tribes in a particular order, almost like a box formation, four, excuse me, three on each side. And in the center of the formation, the ancient rabbis point out to us was the Mishkan, the portable house of worship that the Israelites used while they wandered in the desert. And to this Jewish tradition was clear that it was by the merit of keeping the Mishkan, that portable house of worship, that they survived the harshness of the wilderness. And I personally always found it inspiring that they didn't place in the center of their formation, of their camp, a human being, say Moses, for example. They didn't put there an imposing statue or some formidable weapon in the middle of it and putting a place of worship in the center of their wanderings. The earliest of Jewish traditions was saying that we were placing an idea at the heart of everything that we are not a thing, but an idea. 
and the idea that began, this idea that begins is the very same idea that Jews live with today. It is the idea that makes us a people, it is not borders on a map. Remember, we became a people long before we entered into the land of Israel or allegiance to a ruler or some scant notion of genetics because Jews are not a race. There is no phenotypical sameness amongst the Jews. There are Jews from Ethiopia and there are Jews from Germany, Jews from India and Jews from Italy. Jews were living long in Persia and at the same time they were living in Poland. We don't look the same because we are not a race. And more to the point, people can choose to become a Jew. And no matter how long, for example, I might choose and live in Japan, I will never become Japanese. But once someone enters into our fold and they hold this idea close to their life, they are one of us without question or reservation. This idea that birthed the Jews was a story, one that is told over and over again for thousands of years of a people that was enslaved and broken and tormented but they refused to allow the torment and pain to break them. It explains that we came from something to arrive somewhere, that our journey is wrapped in a message, not of our creation, but yes, of our shaping. The story demands that we see each of ourselves as its messenger. And this story demands that we not permit ourselves to be the last chapter that it is written in, that there must be those who come after us. It is a story about you and me, but more importantly, every Jew understands. While it speaks to you and me, it really is about us. The Jews are a people because of a story. More than the people wrote the story, the story made a people, and more than just a religion, a people. For the Jews, there is no such thing as a nearness bias. A Jew far or close to us draws a swell of concern and care. This is why in times of trouble in Israel, you find yourself repeatedly going to Jewish news sources on the internet. This is why a call for charity and causes in the Jewish community elicits the kind of support that we find it hard to explain to others. This is why there is an Israeli flag on this bima, as there is in every synagogue throughout the world. This is why when Jews pray, no matter how far away we might be, we always pray in the direction of Jerusalem. This is why we visit Israel. This is why we feel a swell of pride and emotion at the sound of the Atikva, the Israeli national anthem. A congregant once confessed to me that they teared up when walking through Pearson Airport once. They caught the image of the Israeli flag on the tail of an LL jet. This is why the moment of a brit milah, a baby naming, a bat and bar mitzvah, an ofrif and a wedding are held so expectantly. It is our sign the story is moving forward because it really is about us. Even our well-known habit of Jews disagreeing and arguing with one another, provided it is not done with dismissal, is but another example of our extraordinary closeness to each other because you only passionately argue with people you feel very close with. In her book, 
teach us to number our days. The writer Barbara Meyerhoff interviewed the residents of a Jewish senior's home in Venice, California, and one of the residents was a particularly ornery and argumentative woman. And when she asked why she argued with her, the woman said, we argue with each other to keep warm. But maybe it is best left to the extraordinary Jewish poet who lived in 11th century Spain, Yehuda Halevi. Halevi was a doctor, a philosopher, and something of a celebrity, apparently, in Christian Spain. And of his many beautiful poems, some of which, a few years back, were made into a best-selling album by a popular Israeli rock star, he may, in fact, be best known and loved for this one. Libi b'mizrach va'anuchi b'sofa ma'arav. Though I am in the far west, my heart is forever in the east. Later in his life, he left all of his fame in the west in Spain and made his way to the land of Israel. It was a treacherous and dangerous journey, and Alevi is said to have died just as he reached the gates of the old city of Jerusalem. And yet none of us would ever wonder or question why he did it. Shabbat Shalom.